Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Female reproductive conditions like endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome are only just starting to receive the attention, funding and understanding they deserve. Joining me on the Discovery Pod today to discuss this very relevant topic is fertility and endometriosis expert, Associate Professor Louise Hull and Dr. Jodie Avery, who is a research fellow with a background in polycystic ovary syndrome. So to begin, Louise, do you mind um, telling me how prevalent endometriosis is in Australia and what it actually is? So there have been a couple of studies just in the last year or so that shows that one in nine Australian women have endometriosis um, and that it takes about 6.4 years to get a diagnosis. So it's a very common condition affecting uh, about not quite 10% of Australian women um, and um, it causes a lot of problems for people because um, they get severe period pain, they often have to take time off school, they miss out on education, they miss out on employment opportunities um, and often it has quite a significant impact on their lives. Mm. Additionally, not that many people know about it, although it's getting more and more recognised. Um, and so hopefully um, people are starting to have conversations about it. Uh, people are starting to explore endometriosis in the media and at school um, where it's been a really taboo topic and it's been hard to get funding, hard for people to recognise how common it is. And a lot of women have symptoms um, and they feel it's hard to talk to people about them and to actually get help to get them addressed. So what actually um, is endometriosis? What happens in the body? Okay, so endometriosis is where the lining of the womb is, um, grows outside the womb on the pelvic organs or in the pelvic cavity. And what happens is when you get your period, the tissue comes away um, and the cells break down and die. But if that happens in the pelvis, they can't be removed from the body. Mm. And so your immune system has to come in and clear those cells so you get a bit, an inflammatory process occurring in the pelvis mm -hmm. um, and that can cause pain, it can cause bloating, it can cause very heavy periods, um, but also it can affect fertility as eggs and sperm and embryos have to be in that inflammatory environment. And then with repeated episodes of pain every month, you can actually get a pain um, syndrome where the nerve in your back in your spinal column gets activated and that can sensitise the pelvic organs, the pelvic floor muscles, but also the brain can be affected by that. So people often get other symptoms like bladder and bowel pain or uh, stabbing pain from the muscles contracting or headaches and migraines. So it really affects a lot of, a lot of your body mm -hmm. um, and it can be quite debilitating. Yeah. Well, and I know from personal experience and just from talking to many people that a lot of those symptoms that you've just uh, explained have been normalised in history, obviously leading to that very long diagnosis time where, where women experiencing those sometimes very debilitating symptoms aren't taken seriously. And I can imagine that would have huge psychological impacts as well, being told that it's all in your head. 
Absolutely. And people worry what those symptoms could be, and they are worried it might be something other than endo that might be quite significant and serious and life-threatening and not to be able to get reassurance about that, but also not to be able to get any treatment because people haven't acknowledged it is very frustrating. Mm. Um, And it's quite tricky because endo does have have an inheritance as well. So sometimes... um, your relations, like your mother, may have had endo, but we can't really get a diagnosis without surgery at the moment, and she may not have been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. So her normalised experience of periods um, may, in fact, be with endometriosis. So she may be saying, that's fine, I had that too. Yeah. Um, and so might your cousins and sisters, and actually no one's really known within the family they've had endo. Right. So again, it can sometimes be a barrier for people to get recognised and treated. And even to be able to get your own self-care without knowing what you've got is very hard to yeah, be able impossible. to actually put your own your own, um, you know, treatments in place and ways of managing that pain. Mm. And we do have a lot of different ways of managing pain now, but it has to be recognised and understood. And a lot of people find, really struggle to get that understanding. Mm. Right, yeah. And of course, and it's a spectrum as well. There's severity of endometriosis. Can you explain that briefly? Um, absolutely. So um, everybody's experience of pain is different and there's lots of different things that go into experiencing pain. So some people um, actually don't have much pain at all and they won't even know they've got endometriosis until they try and have a baby and it's just a bit more difficult and then then people will actually discover that's what they've got mm-hmm. and they've not had the pain symptoms. Other people, um, some, some of those pain symptoms may have been triggered by something other than endometriosis. So they may have very similar symptoms, but not necessarily have endo as well. And that makes it very difficult for doctors to give people a diagnosis. Um, but all of those pains have to be treated too. And, and sometimes there's just a real barrier for people and, and people have to go to different doctors and really start educating themselves on how they can manage some of that pain. Mm, definitely. And Jodie, can you describe PCOS or polycystic ovary syndrome? Okay. Um, yeah, polycystic ovary syndrome, very funny name. <laughs> um, it used to be called Stein-Leventhal syndrome in really? when it was discovered by Mr. Stein, or Dr. Stein and Dr. Leventhal in 1936. So it's been around, well, known about for a very long time, but, um, you know, it's obviously existed long before that. Um, they say that in the Dutch famine, the women that were reproducing were the ones with PCOS because they were able to reproduce in an environment where there was very little food around um, and they were able to maintain their me- metabolism. So there's a lot of anthropology That's around PCOS as well. Um, so PCOS is a syndrome where um, the way they diagnose it now is it, if you've got irregular periods or you're not ovulating or you've got clinical features of excess androgens in your body, excess male hormones in your body, or you've got um, cysts on your ovaries. And they're not actually cysts, they're follicles. So they're underdeveloped or arrested development of the follicle, which is the egg sac. So if you've got two out of three of those symptoms, then you can be diagnosed with PCOS. Right. Okay. So it's it's pretty. It's a pretty difficult to understand condition, isn't it? Because mm. it has that hormonal involvement. Yes. Can you describe that androgen? 
So what happens if you have if a woman has extra excess androgens in her body? It can lead to things like hirsutism, which mm. is excess hair, mm. so facial hair, and maybe in other parts of the body as well. Um, and that also affects the periods. So you can have completely irregular periods. You can have no periods. You can have a long, long period. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's lots of different ways that um, PCOS can be expressed in the yeah. body. Okay. Does that have anything to do with the the, um, the follicles, the um, cysts? That Does that hormone and cyst? Um, I'm not 100% sure on that side of things. Yeah. I have to defer to Louise, who's yeah. a medical um, or a gynecologist. Oh, no, yeah, so. no, of course. No, yeah. that's fine. Um, so what happens is if your metabolism is set up um, so that the signal from the brain can't, um, can't get through to make an egg grow in the ovary, the, a little group of eggs, and, and sometimes it's a very large group, often people have many, many more eggs than other women who don't have PCOS, they start to grow but they can't keep developing mm-hmm. and they get, uh, they, you, you find these little, little follicles that have an egg in them but they, they just sit and mm-hmm. wait. Mm-hmm. And often women with polycystic ovarian syndrome would have up to 80 or 100 eggs that would come out all in one month, wow. whereas mm-hmm. most people would have a much lower number than that, up to right. 20 when they're young. Um, so people with PCOS have a lot of eggs there. Mm-hmm. It's just that we're not talking to them properly, and that's the, medic- that's the treatments we use is to actually signal to the ovary to get those eggs out. And okay. often we use tablets or injections to tell to overcome the barrier mm-hmm. to get the eggs starting to grow. Okay, but we have to be careful not to get them all out at once. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. can happen. Right. Okay. <laughs> So, Jodie, you discussed the, the diagnosis of, mm-hmm. of PCOS yep. being um, the, the cysts, clinical signs, mm-hmm. things like that. Do you, do you think that people are, are quite readily diagnosed is, or is there an underdiagnosis no, going on? No, there's an underdiagnosis. It's just like endometriosis mm-hmm. and um, often PCOS takes like 16 years to be diagnosed wow. in some people. But they are starting to diagnose younger women um, so if an um, adolescent woman has um, irregular periods, she might go to the doctor mm-hmm. and say, this is going on. Um, or if they've got facial hair, mm-hmm. they might wonder why that is um, because that can be um, a point of they get teased mm. in, um, by people So um, or they're overweight and they just can't lose weight no matter what yeah. they do. They might exercise to excess right. and they still can't lose any weight. So. Right. And yeah. so they're pretty classic symptoms. Yeah, of yeah. PCOS. But then you can get skinny PCOS as well. Mm-hmm. So there are actually four different types, four different phenotypes of PCOS. So depending on how it manifests in the body right. as well. Okay. And Louise, how is endometriosis diagnosed at the moment? Um, the classical diagnosis is with um, surgery. Mm-hmm. So there's a real problem there because people who are rural and remote or people who find it difficult to access surgery um, for economic reasons or d- certain countries, it's hard to get surgery to have a look. And we would usually do a laparoscopy, which is mm-hmm. where we use a little telescope through the belly button and mm-hmm. just have a wee look. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the only definitive way of diagnosing endo is to actually see it mm-hmm. and see it in the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are getting much, much better with scans, but they're very specific scans. Yeah. And in Adelaide, there's only a few places that will actually do a proper endometriosis scan. So most scans will just look at the womb and look at the ovaries. And in an endometriosis scan, you really have to look outside 
of that and actually have to look and see how the organs slide over each other and look along the bowel and look along the ligaments to see how thick they are. And there's, it's quite a specific technique that's really been around for only about five years in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get one of those scans, if they do find some signs of endometriosis, it's really pretty accurate. It's sort of in the no, uh, 95% mm-hmm. accurate. If they don't find anything, it's only about 60% accurate. So still 40% of people would miss a diagnosis with a scan. Right. So we're trying to improve that at the moment. Mm-hmm. And MRI does also help with diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to put those two together, sort of using artificial intelligence to try and get people a better diagnosis at the moment. Yeah, so that, that's your current one of your current research projects. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And we're just wanting to make it less more accessible for people mm-hmm. to get a diagnosis mm-hmm. and for people to really understand that there are good scans out there, but it's really important to get the right one. Um, and certainly I've met people who've had eight, nine, ten scans through their life um, without a diagnosis and we've done one endometriosis scan and it's been really clear what's going on mm. um, and it really helped them in their, um, you know, understanding why they're getting the pain. Yeah. Suddenly everything falls into place because mm. about 38% of women will have pain from their first period. So it's a, 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 a lot of women have had pain ever since they've had periods and they've never had an answer. Right. So can you describe um, how your project is new, how, it, how it's diagnosing women in a new way? Um, so we have had the scans for not very long, particularly we've adopted them in Australia reasonably early, but um, only a small pl- a number of places um, do them. And um, only a small number of people can actually read them and, and um, report them. And we're hoping that if we can use a, an algorithm that can look at lots and lots and lots of scans and automatically pick up um, these markers, mm. um, they can use them in machines or on, on a cloud-based system. And people could upload their scans and um, images and they would be able to get a diagnosis quite quickly or their doctors could do that. And it would really help people to know whether to have surgery, whether whether to get other forms of medical treatment for endo um, and, you know, what to do, you know, to be able to go onto a site to find out more about what what endo is and what they can do for endo as well. Right. So so there's a bit of a, a supply-demand mismatch there. There's, there's a huge supply, yeah, a mm. huge supply and demand mismatch because about nearly one in ten women have endometriosis. So. And there's not enough people with those specialised skills to be able to read those scans. Yeah, because yeah. the actual number of women is enormous. Mm, yeah. Definitely. And Jodie, are there, can you describe the current treatment or management for PCOS? Okay, so quite often um, women just get put on um, the pill, the Mm. oral oral contraceptive pill. But um, a lot of research has been done into diet and Mm -hmm. exercise. One of the first studies I ever worked on was a um, study at CSIRO looking at a PCOS diet, and that's actually become the total wellbeing diet. Mm. Um, So, and... I was actually um, involved in managing that study and I was in it myself as well. Um, And um, we looked at how a high-protein diet could um, help women with PCOS. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is um, exercise can really help as well. So those lifestyle factors, Mm -hmm. but it's really important to get um, 
um, young women to be involved in these um, lifestyle factors at a young age because um, they just have to keep at it all their lives. Um, sometimes it's frustrating because they don't get the results they want. There's something in the makeup of women with PCOS that means that maybe they don't lose weight as quickly as um, other women who would exercise. So, um, Very yeah, frustrating. It's really frustrating. Mm. Um, yeah, so basically the hormonal treatments or the lifestyle treatments are mm. the way to go. Right. And you mentioned that you were in um, the research, involved in the research mm-hmm. yourself. Yeah. When were you diagnosed with P- when PCOS? When I was 16. Right. So, yeah, a long time. <laughs> but um, I'm one of the lucky ones because I managed to have my children quite late at 36 and quite easily. So um, I think I thought I was going to have problems, but I went to see... Um, one of the specialists and immediately got pregnant just because I went to see him. Yeah. Because it's a real psychological thing yeah. as well quite often. Um, yeah, so mm. that was very lucky. Okay. And what can you describe for us your research, current, yes. your current project? Okay, so my current project is actually looking at, um, qu- well, quality of life or distress in women with, with PCOS. And we're calling, we're going to design a new um, tool because the tools that are used to do, describe um, quality of life in women with PCOS aren't that great Mm because they look at things like, you know, if you use a generic quality of life tool, you're looking at how far can you walk, can you bathe yourself, things like that. But we're really interested in the impacts that PCOS has have on women's day-to-day life and their relationships and what are the most important things to them. Mm. So um, we're going to interview about 200 women and um, find out what are the most important things and how women value each of those Mm. things in their lives as well. And we're going to call it the Hera Call. So what does that mean? So it's named after Hera, who Mm -hmm. is the goddess of um, misery, I think, and but... Also childbirth and things like that. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> very positive. <laughs> but it, um, we um, are actually going to use it, um, the same quality of life questionnaire and do one for endo and do one for um, miscarriage and things like that after we've validated this first one. So it's wow. going to be a long-term project, so we're only just starting. Yeah. It's very exciting. Yeah. So important though because yeah. as soon as that level of quality of life is acknowledged and understood, then the the attention is given that it deserves. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I I know that both conditions that we're discussing PCOS and endometriosis both don't have a cure. Um, is that right, or have I just made that up? <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, yes. So um, with endo, we do do surgery and mm. we remove the lesions, and sometimes we remove we would, but. We don't really anticipate that we would remove every single little lesion because mm-hmm. sometimes they're microscopic. Um, but also, even if we do, sometimes the sensitization of the neural pathways and the pain mechanisms, have, that, that has to be treated in a different way because if your dorsal root ganglion and your spine is activated, you have to actually work on treatments for that. Yeah. And removing the lesion won't change that. So, and if you've got pelvic floor spasm, you have to actually do physiotherapy to relieve the spasm. And again, removing the lesion won't change that. Yeah. So usually you have to look at a, a multidisciplinary team. Increasingly, we're asking the women themselves to work out their needs so that we can source 
the right people for them at that moment in time. And endometriosis can change over time too. So you may, the treatments you have put into place and your self-care and your treatment team that works when you're 15 may be quite different to when you're 30 because you may be wanting to have a baby, you may have to go off the pill, you may have to change what you want to do, or the endo might have changed over time. So you then have to get a different treatment team that might involve a fertility specialist, or you may need surgery at some point. Um, and so you do have to be continually managing endo, and it's sort of a, a condition where we think that optimising um you know, pain management and fertility and really ensuring people can get the most out of their life, that they're not um, unable to work, unable to socialise, unable to have relationships. We're really trying to make sure that endo is a really small part of your life. It will always be there, but all the rest of it's bigger. Mm -hmm. And we want to make that as big as we can. Yeah. And this is an endo as small as you can. Mm -hmm. And just make sure that our interventions are at the right time and place and really targeted for that particular person. Because no two people have the same symptoms, have the same course, um, and have the same outcomes. So we really have to look after each person as an individual. Right. Mm. And you mentioned in there the contraceptive pill. Yes. What role does that play in the treatment plan? Um, we use the contraceptive pill quite a lot for lots of reasons, but the main one is we actually often run the pill packets together so that women don't have to have as many periods. Right. And if we can um, run the pill packets together and not have a pain trigger every yeah. single month by having a menstrual pain trigger, yeah. um, we can reduce the pain triggers and all the pain symptomatology. And if we can get younger women to have four periods a year, they can have their periods in the school holidays, so they're not at school and they're not going to miss school. And some women can run the packets together continuously so they don't get a period at all. Right. But it, even if you can have two a year... It's much better than 12 a year. Yeah. And so we, we often use the pill to do that. The pill also makes the lining of the womb grow less. Mm -hmm. It tends to be um, moderated. So you tend to not have such heavy periods and often they're not quite so painful. Mm -hmm. So often the pill, even if people have to have a period every month because they can't run the packets together, it can be really useful. Right. And do you think that there is a cure in the near future or the foreseeable future for either of these conditions? Um, I think there's probably going to be things we can do to prevent complications. So if we can recognise things earlier, we can put things in place to prevent some of the pain, complex pain syndromes. Yeah. Um, and also we certainly can prevent, you know, reduce the risk of a fertility problem because we can freeze eggs now. Yeah. So if uh, women with endo often have fewer eggs... Um, and, and often they take longer to conceive and we can actually freeze eggs when they're younger and they can come back and they can be their own donor for when they're ready to have a family. Right. So there's lots of different things and we can measure the eggs now too mm -hmm. to know if, if that's important for someone, particularly if they're needing a lot of surgery on the ovary, mm -hmm. which can reduce egg numbers right. too. That is so important, yeah. So Jodie, have you um, noticed... Uh, a huge change in this space since you were diagnosed with PCOS? Um, I think women are more empowered to find out the information that they need. I spend a lot of time um, looking at 
um, all the groups on Facebook and things yeah. like that and the information that women can get nowadays because they've got access to the internet um, is great but there are a lot of myths out there that need to be busted. Louise, do you think that there, what do you think are the factors, so whether they be social, medical factors that have contributed to that positive change in this space? In both PCOS and endo, um, certainly I think social media has contributed a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, with both conditions, um, you know, the, the language is about talking about periods mm-hmm. and that has been such a taboo topic for many, many years in our society, particularly um, talking with men or, you know, with with colleagues. And, and I think the changes have been that it's so much more acceptable in society to, to understand that menstruation is a biological change and people have felt empowered to say I have endometriosis mm. and this is what my symptoms are and we now have a menstrual schools program that is actually going and teaching young people, men, boys and girls mm. about menstrual problems and what they are and how to look at them and how to manage them and how to help someone who is your sister or your partner, or your daughter, mm. or you know your your employer, employee, yeah. <laughs> or employer, um, you know if if they are needing to manage that um, and they're getting pain symptoms and just having some understanding around that, I yeah. think it has allowed women to actually talk about it. Mm. Um, they've recognised that there has been so little funding and so little research or work done to actually really understand the condition Mm. and also to provide better medical treatments and medications um, and diagnostics and you know really there haven't been very good tools because there has been so little research in this space and we're now getting people who are prepared to say this is what I have this is my story you know, this should be supported in society. And um, that was very hard to find people who would feel comfortable enough to talk about that. And now we have politicians who will talk about it. We have, um, you know, senior people in senior positions who have endometriosis who are prepared to acknowledge that publicly. And also, um, you know, people are prepared to ask for help from their teachers or from their colleagues or from their employer in a Mm. way that they would have been too embarrassed to ask for help in the past. And that's been amazing. And and that's partly been social media because people now are not isolated. They can go online and find groups and find social support. And we're actually also developing a digital platform for the government Mm. about endometriosis and, you know, to be able to give people some tools of what to do if they've got those symptoms. Absolutely. I think you're so right. When a topic isn't discussed, when it's a taboo, solutions can't be found because you need to have that conversation. And so I'm so grateful for both of your voices in these areas. And I'm sure all of our listeners on the Discovery Pod are very grateful as well. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope you had as much fun as I did. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Discovery Pod, proudly brought to you by the University of Adelaide.